Recent veterans encountering transition to civilian life often face uncertainty, self-doubt, sometimes serious. And some of those returning from Afghanistan after the abrupt U.S. withdrawal might find the transition extra difficult. While the Veterans Affairs Department has at least one staff psychologist who can emphasize, a retired Army Ranger with four tours of Afghanistan behind him, he's now co-director of VA's Transitioning Service Member Veteran and Suicide Prevention Center. Dr. Joe Garacy joins me now. Dr. Garacy, good to have you on. Good to be on. Thanks for having me. And let's begin with the center itself, the Transitioning Service Member Veteran and Suicide Prevention Center. It's a mouthful. What happens there? <laughs> well, I, I think it's important to identify is that it's, it is a mouthful, but from the Army Ranger perspective, it's very clear. So if you put all that together, it comes out to task. And so task and purpose. So for, from an infantryman, everything in my life that I've done has been a focused on what is my task and what is my purpose. So the task right now is to mitigate suicide risk and, and mitigate suicides for service members as they're transitioning. And uh, we've been able to identify in our research and our publications and be able to coin this period of time as the deadly gap. So looking at, you know, from us working individually with veteran patients that are in this window that uh, we see clinically to looking at uh, interventions that help this population to, which I think is even more important working at the macro level, is how do we apply a universal public health approach so everybody in the community really can kind of get behind them and we can look at the evidence to see what really kind of works because we're really kind of struggling right now in the field what really kind of works with this population. And you mentioned there is this zone of danger in particular. I guess that's for recent people that have mustered out of the military and are now in veteran status. Does the, I guess, danger or threat of suicide tend to go away as time goes on, or how does that work? I think that's what we hope. I I think that's what we anticipate the research will bear. But uh, unfortunately, at this point, you know, we've only been able to go out like, you know, seven to eight years to really kind of really kind of focus on this population. And if we look at even some of the most recent, the VA National Annual Suicide Report that came out two weeks ago, we see that this is a trend and a phenomenon, especially for the 18 to 34-year-olds that are within this first year window, is, is we really kind of focus on them, that their rate of suicide has gone up you know, exponentially from before 9-11. Just you know, right about 20 per 100,000, we measure suicide rates per 100,000. And the most recent report, it's above 40, 40 per 100,000. And that's a rate that's significantly higher than their civilian counterparts of the same age group. And it's also significantly higher than veterans that are over 35. So there's definitely something happening within this window. So we can identify that uh, it, it is a problem. And we're still trying to catch up with the research to really be able to understand, like, what is contributing to this? But uh, I'll be honest, as an infantryman, I always don't like to wait for the answers. I need to go kind of solve the problem. So that's that's kind of my my challenge has been for, for many years in my deployment to Afghanistan is, is, Joe, we've got a problem in this area. We don't know exactly what the problem is. We just need you and your soldiers to go and fix it and resolve it and make it go away. So I would say within the task, we very much are on that. We're not waiting for the research to kind of show us what is causing this. We're going to go out, try and fix it but then also use the rigor of research to be able to kind of show what we're doing actually is effective. We're speaking with Dr. Joe Garacy, co-director of the Transitioning Service Member Veteran and Suicide Prevention Center at the Veterans Health Administration. Well, you've got a lot of variables to look at because there is the nature of the specific deployments in Afghanistan, I guess in Iraq, and no two wars and battle zones, I imagine, are identical. There's that issue. 
there is the change in societal makeup, the way people are brought up and raised, differences from generation to generation. Vietnam-era veterans were raised in a different way than perhaps the current 18 to 34-year-olds. I think that's pretty definite. And then there is the society that they return to is very different. So what kind of research can you design to maybe ferret out and control for the variables? Yeah, and that's hard. One thing we can do is we can ask people that have transitioned that have had suicide attempts, like, what was this process like for you? But we know that only 30% of the people are going to acknowledge and let us know that they've had a suicide attempt. So the majority of the population that we ask, you know, have you had a suicide attempt? They're not going to be honest with us, and nor would I, as, as a veteran, be honest with somebody that's wanted to ask me about my suicide risk. It's a very personal, delicate thing. And for us as veterans, we don't like to identify weakness. We don't like to identify things that are going wrong with us. And even going back to me, my first time I went to mental health care was after my second deployment. It was one of the most anxiety-provoking things I've ever done in my life. I was in active duty, and I was reticent to go to the Army for care. Uh, I needed help. So I decided to go to, uh, actually, I'm very thankful to, you know, Vietnam veterans. They were advocates and created something across the VA we now have called Vet Centers. You know, storefront, a lot of them run by veterans, 300 across the country. And, you know, I'll never forget going into my psychologist there and saying, you can't know my name. You can't know anything about me. You just you just need to know that that I need some help. And, you know, right away, you know, and, and, and she was a phenomenal therapist and she used the term PTSD within the first five minutes of us sitting down and talking. And I was like, I just want to be clear, you not only can you not know my name, but uh, we are never going to use that term again. Like, you just need to know I need help and I need the process. So I can really relate to the challenge we have in the research because I'm one of those veterans that's recently transitioned, and I wouldn't be honest on, on, on those surveys. So then what do we do is we have to look at mortality data that those that actually have died and then retroactively look, what were some of the indicators that kind of led to that? And, and I think the research is clear that those that have higher levels of uh, psychological disorders like depression or bipolar you know, they're going to have higher rate, but so many of those veterans also are reticent, like I was, to go and seek care. It's an extremely anxiety-provoking uh, experience. Obviously, we've mentioned aged. Uh, you've mentioned kind of the different types of trauma. So military sexual trauma is something that we got to watch very closely and something that we're really kind of putting a light on. And there's been some other researchers also put a light on, as you talked about, the challenges reintegrating to that civilian sector. So we call them reintegration difficulties. And so your difficulties getting a job, you know, being able to connect to school, to, you know, find school for your kids, you know, the legal troubles that we find in this population, DUIs, battery, utilization of illicit substances, you know, but then also the aspect of just feeling connected to your community and like who is on my left and my right? Who do I really kind of feel connected to? And also we'll put medical care there is a reintegration difficulty that's there. So this is a, is a variable that really kind of has gone under the current and hasn't really been recognized and identified. But I think is it truly a way that uniformly that we can address this problem set at the universal level. So I, what we call it is like the disease model. When you really try to parse down and identify with extreme specificity, like only these people are the ones we need to help. And, and, and what I'm really kind of trying to do, and you know, with the help of lots of other researchers, much smarter than myself, say like, we're, we're gonna continue to miss and fail if we try to look very specifically. What we need to do is apply an approach that's aligned with the military culture and help everyone. If we help everyone through this transition, because that's what we're used to. In the military, we're used to helping each other. We're used to all of us being helped through the process as a team, you know, brothers and sisters, comrades in arms. 
And if we can really kind of help everyone through, then the hypothesis is that then we'll see those suicide numbers start to trickle down. So the VA's done phenomenal work, you know, looking at this kind of uh, this community-based approach. How do we work with the community better? How do we work with those that aren't coming to the VA so we can universally help this population? Getting to the issue of the recent withdrawal from Afghanistan, controversial, a lot of news, a lot of political arguing and bickering over it. Do you feel or do you sense that that will have a negative effect on the very recent veterans, that last crew? I think there's a famous picture of the last guy boarding the aircraft, you know, the uh, the infrared picture and so on. Do you think they'll have a bigger problem or a more intense problem than those that might have left earlier? So I I think I want to start off by saying that most of us are very, very resilient, that most of us can get through difficulties and trials and tribulations based on our experiences. But I would say that's very much a heterogeneous response, like a very individualized response on how we're going to respond. So I can let you know how I'm responding and what this process has been like for me and then what it's been for some of the patients that I'm working with and what it's been like for some of my comrades and just acknowledge it for me, you know, and and that last person that was getting on that last aircraft is somebody that I first deployed with to Afghanistan right after 9-11 with the Ranger Regiment. So see him as the last person leaving and we were one of the first ones there. It was pretty uh, sentimental. And then having 9-11, 20th anniversary down at the memorial. This has been a challenging time for me and kind of a, is, is elicited and evoked lots of lots of emotions. And when I work with my patients, like, OK, so anger, that's that's not helpful. It's like what's under the anger. It's like this anger volcano. But like, you know, it's, but what's underneath? We got to get to the core. We got to get the molten level. What's going on? And I think for us, there's lots of sadness for the loss and what happened and there's you know lots of fear for our comrades that fought so valiantly with us there that are still left and what's going to happen with, with with the women that are left there so i think we all have an individual response i think we all deal with it differently but uh, i think it's really beneficial for all the veterans out there to recognize that we're not the first generation to go through this you know vietnam veterans went through something comparable uh, iraq veterans went through something comparable and we really need to kind of come together put our arms around each other and you know so thankful for all the vietnam veterans that have reached out to me and just kind of check them and say hey joe how you doing and something we really need to do as a community we're speaking with dr joe garacy co-director of the transitioning service member veteran and suicide prevention center at the veterans health administration sounds like there's a little bit of that fish out of water feeling when people return because and you tell me if you have seen what combat veterans have seen and done what they've done in a difficult place like Afghanistan and you come home and everybody's worried about the latest TikTok video or something like that, it must seem like a different universe at some level. And I would say just not those that went to combat. I mean, so you go through a transition when you leave that recruiter's office and then you go to basic training, like that's your first rite of passage. You, you are no longer this, this neophyte in, in the local tribe. You are transitioned into this warrior class. And then some go through a second rite of passage when you kind of go through combat or other kind of trials and tribulations. And then you become fortified as, as a warrior, all of us. And so when the 200,000 of us active duty service members transition every year, you do transition back into a place from Joseph, Joseph Campbell, who talks a lot about the, the hero's journey. And so we can kind of get lost between worlds. 
And so there's other other traditions, Native American or Greek or Roman mythology kind of talks about the critical role of the community really coming to be those elders, those guides, those Sherpas to help to reintegrate us. It's not, it wasn't our responsibility. It wasn't us who sent us forth. It was the civilian populace and their elected officials that sent us forth. Comparably, it is that civilian community as it has in traditions and if you look at the collective unconscious, the warrior class over time, it was the civilian population that needed to bring us back and to reintegrate us and to help us define our next mission in life and help us to become leaders. And without that guidance, without that help, without that assistance, we can get lost in that world. And as you mentioned, kind of being a fish out of water. And given the veterans hiring preference in the federal government, many federal employees are apt to encounter a recent veteran on the job. So what can they, as always civilians, do to make sure that the person, the veteran, uh, does feel welcomed? Or what can they do to help that transition without being intrusive or patronizing? Yeah, and I think that's 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 phenomenal question. Not only and I, I, a lot of, I do a lot of work training VA and non-VA providers and HR uh, individuals in a training we call the Veteran Cultural Competence, a day-long immersive training that we do to kind of address that problem. So, so you as a civilian, you want to help. What can you do to help? And, and the biggest things I you know, kind of teach is to assume nothing, you know, identify and to recognize those stereotypes that you possess. Don't deny them. Acknowledge them. Like I see veterans as angry, as damaged, as entitled, as somebody that's a, a ticking time bomb. To acknowledge those stereotypes are there because that is what's given to you from the media. That's what's portrayed in, in, in the movies. So acknowledge, recognize that. Do the internal kind of work to elicit, to talk about, to acknowledge, and to learn uh, from that. That's step one, acknowledge our biases. Next one is to learn about the particular culture, learn about veterans. And this isn't just for veterans overcoming stereotypes, biases, and establishing positive personal relationships. This goes, you know, any demographic, somebody that's different than you. And then with this skill set, what's it like to be a service member? What's it like to be a veteran? Immerse yourself in their world. And then apply those skills. And I always kind of tell people to allow yourself to be vulnerable with veterans and they'll be vulnerable with you. Be open, be personal. And I think the thing that veterans care about the most and to be able to work through this divide is uh, a motto from one of the battalions I was in, uh, deeds, not words. So demonstrate through your deeds uh, that you really want to help us. You want to integrate us and not just through your words. And, and we found that so many civilians, they want to do more than just uh, say thank you for the service. They really want to kind of help you in tangible ways. It's just they don't know how. Dr. Joe Garacy is co-director of the Transitioning Service Member Veteran and Suicide Prevention Center at the Veterans Health Administration. You've given us a lot to think about. Thanks so much for joining me. And thank you for having me anytime. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, 
Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual. And that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon. Um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own. But he would stop and he would focus on me. And he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. 
you're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance in some cases and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.